Welcome to Food Love, episode 13. We're here today with Will Harris from White Oak Pastures. I would say that he's probably one of my idols in food with the way that he learned to love the land differently. I think he has been instrumental in my understanding of how important soil is and what it means to be a land steward and how to access an understanding of a right relationship to food and land. Early on in my culinary career, I served as a um, demo chef for Whole Foods working in the marketing department. And that was when I met you, Will. Do you remember that, Will? And you, and to me, you look the same. It's been so many years, um, but you're, you're wearing your cowboy hat and you've still got your mustache and, and beard and you look great. It's a different color than it was back then. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. okay. That's okay. We're both wearing glasses now. <laughs> yeah. And um, I remember just feeling so um, amazed, both by you personally. Like, I, I felt like you were both a pioneer and a leader in in beef, right? Because, wow, like, our, our country consumes a lot of beef, Right? I, I don't even know what the figures are right now. But I think I, it's 40, some, 40 something pounds per person per year. 40 something pounds per person. I mean, that's that's a lot. And I remember when I first tasted the beef that you were putting into Whole Foods, that it was it felt to me like a coming home because I had grown up in Wisconsin and my mother used to purchase from the butcher a whole steer, I think, to kind of feed us through the whole year. And that was the way that we purchased. And so it was coming from some local farm in Wisconsin. And the flavor of the beef was just beyond comparison to anything else. And what I had realized, even at Whole Foods, because I had been tasting things as I was demoing things, was that your beef, bar none, had the best flavor. And, and so when I demoed it, that was one of the things I would say to people that, you know, if you really care about the quality of flavor of the beef, you've got to try this beef. And, and you need to think about the flavor before you think about cost. And the reason is because, because there's value in the beef. And I mean, you and I were kind of talking about how people didn't quite understand grass-fed beef at that time. Do you remember I do. I do recall those conversations. Yeah. It, 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 you know the, you know, I, you know certainly at the at the checkout counter, our beef does cost more. But I really don't think it. I really don't think it does. I think that the the fact that we have internalized so many of the externalized cost of the commodity system that it is reflected at the price of the checkout counter instead of absorbed by society in general. Yes, yeah. And and for me, what I understood was that I was paying for health, not just for the beef. And, and I think that's like a pivotal conversation for people to be having across the country around food. And when we compare how we spend our money on food versus how Europe spends money on food, like on a per diem basis, the, in Europe, they spend more money because I think there's a cultural understanding that 
if you care about aligning your health with the health of the environment and all those things, that it cascades. And so there's there's just more understanding of it. And so so for me, if you're going to eat beef, like really spend the time to understand what you're doing um, with the soil and with the care for the animals. Could, could you share with listeners how you came to the revelation of changing the way that you were taking care of the, the land? Uh, because to me, that, that conversation was one of the most important in my life. Well, I certainly will, and I appreciate all the kind of words you said. Uh, one of the things that I think makes us a little different is that uh, I came from the industrial side of agriculture. Mm. You know, I'm, uh, I was born in 1954. <clears throat> I graduated from the College of Agriculture, University of Georgia in 1976. And I came home to my family farm and ran it very, very industrially for 20 years mm-hmm. before I started to, to, to change the model. And, uh, and the model, uh, uh, and I, I think that it's not to my credit. I think the reason I became uh, aware of the unintended consequences of that production model was because I was a very heavy-handed, excessive kind of industrial producer. Mm. So the unintended consequences were probably more evident to me than to someone who was uh, operating more moderately. Mm-hmm. But for, for, for me, the canary in the coal mine was uh, initially animal welfare. What I thought, had thought all my life uh, of as good animal welfare, I started to, to, to perceive it as not so good animal welfare. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had operated under the belief that if I kept my animals well-fed, well-watered, in a comfortable temperature range, it didn't intentionally inflict pain and suffering. Now, that was good on the welfare. Now, that was that's fair enough. And in my, as I turned about 40 years old, I started realizing that that's not enough. That's all, we, you got to do those things for sure. That's a no brainer. But also, I think it's incumbent upon the stockman to create an environment in which the animal can express instinctive behavior. Mm. Chickens scratch and peck, hogs root and wallow, cows roam and graze. And the industrial confinement system does not allow for those behaviors. And that is very, very stressful for the animal 24-7 all its life. So you've got to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. When I came to that realization, very quickly after that, uh, I came to the realization that, that what I was doing for the land was equally wrong. Mm-hmm. I never considered the land as a living thing. Mm-hmm. For me, it was a dead mineral medium that we used for plant production. And it was more about killing things we didn't want than making the land live and thrive. Mm-hmm. So that 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 came upon me fairly quickly after the uh, the animal welfare realization. Will can you des- can you describe that? Because I I remember a conversation in the Woodfire Grill restaurant, and 
when I left that conversation, I had this feeling that you had experienced almost like a, 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 a Saul turning to Paul kind of revelation, like from the Bible, you know, where, where you had suddenly, suddenly realized what was happening with the soil. It was almost like you were telling me that you had started to listen to the soil differently. Well, that, that, that part is true. You do have to listen. You, 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 your, your, your senses are important if you are focused on uh, operating in cooperation with nature. You know, the smell, the, the, the vision, the hearing. <clears throat> the, the, the part that's not quite right is it was not an epiphany. It, 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 it was a gradual realization. Okay, so I, okay. But, uh, but, to, but to be sure... Listening to the land, looking at the land, smelling the land, focused, being focused on the land is is essential. You know, so, so what's happened is in the industrial model, we broke the cycles of nature. Mm. The cycles of nature are, to, to name a few, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, the mineral cycle, the energy cycle, the microbial cycle, the grazing cycle, community dynamics, on and on and on. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are cycles we don't even recognize. You know, we humans are not uh, uh, sensitive enough to even know or measure what's happening. But there are cycles of nature. When those cycles of nature are operating optimally, it produces an abundance. You know, all that coal and gas and oil in the ground, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that's the abundance of nature from the dinosaur era. Yes. That's a function of all those cycles, energy cycle, water cycle, microbial cycle, operating optimally however many millions of years ago. And all that energy was captured in the form of what we think of today as fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And that's the only wealth there is on this earth. Mm-hmm. And in that case, uh, it became the fuel that we've lived on for the last 75 or 80 years. But in a more current way of thinking, it's the food that we ingest. You know, we, mm-hmm. you know, everything we eat used to be a living thing. Everything we gain yes. nutrition from mm-hmm. used to live. And it used to be... And it should be part of that abundance from the cycles of nature. But you know, post-World War II, we changed all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. We did with the levels of uh, chemicals. I know there's, um, w- you and I were involved in, in you much more. <laughs> you were the president of Georgia Organics. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember Ed Taylor um talking to me at one point, he used to say, as above, so below. And I think that's like a common saying to, that, that when you when you look at the, the plant, you already know what its roots are like. You already understand what the soil is like because it's been cared for in a particular way. And I think that, you know, that experience of community in Georgia Organics um, helped me understand the depth of which you understood this connection. Like, you know, in the podcast, we talk about terroir, how the different factors, we talk about it like factors, it's a, it's a whole organic system that that develops the, the food for the animals that you're taking care of. And when we only look at one aspect, we're not really appreciating the importance of the wholeness of the system of care. 
because the only thing we can do if we're not paying attention is mess up the natural cycles, right? And so you making that commitment to regenerative farming, you're adding value back in. You're you're kind of not, you're not taking away, right? Which is what the industrial form of farming was doing was depleting the soil of its natural wealth, right? Well, that, that's exactly right. You know, it's uh, uh, it's very reductive, yeah. and uh, supposed to be very inclusive. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we humans are so good at technology. We just it makes us so powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the first creature ever to live on the face of the earth that had the power to break the cycles of nature, at least in the short mm-hmm. term. And yeah. no other creature has ever done that. And we weren't able to do it until fairly recently in our history. But for the last century or so, especially post-World War II, post-World War II is when so much of that technology from the war effort was redirected to, to agriculture. We could talk about that all day. But it was a real game changer. And uh, suddenly... We weren't cooperating with nature in the production of food. We were struggling against nature. Yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. But so what I forgot to say was Ed Taylor was the one who told me that post-World War II, all those plants of, you know, factories that were producing munitions and whatnot, they needed a purpose after the war. And what he said to me was that they converted to, to creating the pesticides that we began to use and that began to kind of slowly er- erode the health of the soil. And I just, you know, wondered what your, what your take on that was. Yeah, I would do uh, Everything it said is exactly right. I would amend pesticides. There was some of that, but the main okay. uh, repurposing of the war effort was those munition plants were uh-huh. repurposed to make ammoniated fertilizer. Ah, you know, nitrogen, okay. nitrogen, is nitrogen is a key component in the explosives. It's a key component in ammoniated fertilizer. Okay. And ammoniated fertilizer was invented, I think, in the late 1800s. I'm not sure that date, 1880-something maybe. But it was so expensive, farmers didn't use it much, if at all. Okay. Uh, when the millions and millions of dollars for uh, muni- investment in munitions plants had no purpose anymore, and they could be repurposed to make ammoniated fertilizer, it became incredibly cheap. And almost all the farmers started to use it, including my, my father. Okay. So, uh, you know, and there's some other, you know, uh, things like plowing mules. Prior to World War II, uh, most of the crops were plowed with mules. When those farm boys went to the, to the European theater and drove tanks, they didn't want to come home and plow mules. They wanted tractors. Uh, to Ed's point, I believe that the first pesticide that we had that was commonly used was 2,4-D, which I think came out of World War II nerve gas chemistry, mm-hmm. the effort. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We could go on and on and on down the line uh, even the need for food. You know, post-World War II, Europe was starving. There was a need for cheap, abundant 
safe food, a dire need, worldwide need. And the industrialization, commoditization, centralization made was wildly successful in providing that. It, and in fact, too successful. I think it made food obscenely cheap instead of just cheap. Yes. And wastefully abundant instead of just mm-hmm. abundant. And safe, at least in the acute sense of the word. Maybe not, maybe, maybe really not so safe. But at least in the acute, so you didn't need it and fall over with a uh, an acute illness. Wow, wow! You know, I'm I'm just learning so much again from you, Will, <laughs> and I wonder why it is I'm not talking to you more regularly <laughs> because, so, in fact, everybody you, should. Because you're too busy. Be. You're too busy. No, no, I'm I'm I need to make time for this. I think everyone needs to make time to understand this because for me. Um, it has been every every time I talk with you, it's always been like a revelation, another layer revealed about what happened with our food systems and and how our values changed. Right. Kind of, and kind of interestingly, along those lines, uh, yeah. Random House has bought the book rights for uh, our story, the White Oak Pastures uh, journey. Beautiful. It's so beautiful. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm glad. Because, you know, one of the reasons is when people begin to understand this story, they can they can internalize a different set of values and a different appreciation for the soil. And and this idea, in my mind, of this right relationship that you've you've been holding right for it, not just for yourself and your family, but for the community at large and I remember the first time I tasted your beef, I, I said to you, how, how do we make sure that this is everywhere? Because we know if, if people are eating this beef, then all those cattle farms around the country will be taking care of the animals and taking care of the soil. And here in the Pacific Northwest, we do have some people kind of following these same practices um, because because there are many people here who begin with that right relationship with the environment and respect for it. And, um, you know, I'm hopeful that even the folks who are here locally just hear this and kind of put a framework um, that's even bigger than themselves to recognize that the community is beyond this location. And and so I'm hopeful about your book. I I think that's going to be really exciting when that comes out. I'd love to have you on again with Jenny, your daughter, when that comes out. It's just, you, it's fabulous do, to hear. You do have some great producers in your part of the world. I'm not really familiar with that geography, but uh, I know that uh, Reynolds, Reynolds Ranch, Reynolds Beef is in Northern California. There's a guy named uh, Spencer Smith who has a ranch in Nevada, Northern Nevada. Okay. Uh, Alexandria Dairy uh, in uh, Northern California. You know, there's just some great producers up there. Okay, that's good to know. I'll keep that um, in mind. And and super hyper locally, um, we have Shorts Farm that that begins with the soil as well with its with its beef. So so tell me, I, I think for the listeners' sake, could, um, could you tell us a little bit about the size of the farm that you operate and like the scale and how scale also relates to you know, the ability to manage the land and the animals well. I will. 
So the farm, White Oak Passage, is 3,200 acres. It's, you know, that's a, a little bigger than most farms around here. It's not nearly as big as some of the properties in the West, a lot bigger than what you would find in New England. You know, it's all very relative. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the 3,200 acres is divided up into a hundred and twelve, I think, 30-ish acre paddocks. And we move animals every day. Uh, we currently raise cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and we hand butcher them here on the farm. We pasture raise chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks, and we hand butcher them on a separate USDA inspected facility here on the farm. We raise organic vegetables, uh, honey, pastured eggs, a lot of uh, a lot of different uh, products that are part of the abundance of the land. Wow, you have expanded so much, and I've seen some of it on um, social media, but I didn't quite realize the extent of it. That in in some ways, that sort of plurality of products represents. I guess the evolution and how you've learned to to make a whole ecosystem on on the thirty two hundred acres. That's when that's you amazing. Were, you, you and I first met. Uh, the only product we had was grass fed beef. Yeah. There's also another fourteen hundred and twenty five acres in addition to the thirty two hundred. That's a convert a utility size uh, solar voltaic array, it's a solar energy farm. And, oh wow! Uh, and we graze it with our sheep. Uh, we have the vegetation management contract, and they're building mm-hmm. several thousand more acres of, of build out here around us. So we'll be grazing that. So we, we're 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 growing quite a lot. Uh, the opportunities are presented themselves. Wow, that's amazing. You know, Will, in my secret heart of hearts, someday I want to be making sheep's milk cheese to make ricotta. <laughs> because when I worked at Via Lisa in um, Atlanta, Georgia, I, I I tasted sheep's milk ricotta from Italy and nobody was making it in the U.S. at that time. And the flavor of that is just so much different and it produces the most sublime lasagna ever. <laughs> so. I'm just wondering when is that going to be available? Those well, when, you move down, when you move down here and and uh, help me climb that learning curve of making that wonderful product, we'll get started. We, okay, uh, <laughs> that uh, sounds we, amazing. Uh, one of the things we do is uh, one of the things that does make this farm different is the amount of vertical immigration that's on it. Uh, we uh-huh. we built a USDA inspected red meat slaughter facility okay. on the farm. Wow. And the USDA inspected poultry slaughter facility on the farm. Wow. We do all the processing here. We have an internet wow. order fulfillment center where we f- uh, fulfill online orders and a value addition uh, commissary, we call it. So mm-hmm. if you'll come and show us how to make that wonderful sheet milk cheese, we'll get started. Well, that'd be amazing. Oh, I'm going to talk to my partner about that <laughs> because I do want it in this country. Um, so, so let me get back to you on that. Oh man, that'd be amazing. We'll 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 leave the light on for you. Thank you. Wow. 
Um, so, so tell me how many how many people now are employed to to make that vertical integration happen for all that land? Sure, we have uh, 180 employees. Wow, it's, we're the largest uh, employer, private employer in the county, mm-hmm. uh, and then and, and Clay County, Georgia, where I'm sitting right now, mm-hmm. is uh, I just learned is the poorest county in the United States of America wow. in terms of per household household income. Wow. So uh, uh, we, we write payroll checks for about $100,000 every Friday mm-hmm. in wow. the poorest county in the nation. So I'm, I'm very wow. proud of that economic impact. We, uh, we did not uh, set out to do that. That was, mm-hmm. you know, the first, the first two things we talked about First two changes we made, the welfare of the animals and the regenerative management of the land, were very intentional. We figured out, I, I, I in that era today, we, back then it was I, figured out what I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And I very intentionally learned how to move away from it and impl- implemented it. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. You know, I, I rethought it, re-implemented. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that for 25 years, yeah. and uh, uh, the impact on the rural community is just as important to me as the mm-hmm. animal welfare and the regenerative land management. But mm-hmm. it was very unintentional. We, we, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get dissatisfied with what was happening and think I could do it different and steady and change. We just. Uh, made the changes for the land and the animals. Mm-hmm. And we needed people, and the people that we hired were young, educated, sophisticated, uh, passionate people that weren't from around here. Mm-hmm. And they came here, and they needed a place to eat and sleep and drink and shop and play. Mm-hmm. So we provided it. And, and one day looked up and said, this little town is nice. Yeah, it is, okay. It's gone from literally, literally a, a ghost town, very mm-hmm. literally, to a, a little destination. Uh-huh. And nobody did it intentionally. It just, mm-hmm. And, and it, it made me aware that <clears throat> what had happened here had happened all over rural America. And that is industrialized farming rendered rural America uh, irrelevant, economically irrelevant. Nobody Mm -hmm. needed it anymore. So it atrophied. Mm -hmm. And when we changed the way we farm, de-industrialized it, the rural community became highly relevant again, and it Mm -hmm. came alive. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's such an important lesson. And I didn't figure it out. I just experienced it. It just mm-hmm. it just happened on my path. Wow, that's that's a a beautiful like a beautiful unintended consequence, right? As opposed to the kinds that hurt more. So it's it's really good to hear that happening here where we are. We have a s- strong community base, uh, but we run with the tension of a high tourism city in the middle of the county, and then. Um, we have something called Chimicum Valley, and we also have farms, smaller farms in Port Townsend. The scale is much smaller, but 
you know, the, the development, one of the things we struggle with is having the, the needs met of the people who would do the farming um, and the support people uh, because our housing costs have gone the way of retired people from California. Um, so we have a, like an unnatural problem happening here um, that we have to address first in some ways in order to make it more feasible for um, the people who are farming to, to do so economically, you know, mm-hmm. but, but it's interesting to hear how you created the space. It makes me wonder whether people need to go a little further afield to kind of get outside of that bubble um, of real estate um, in some ways. So you I think, really. I, I think the takeaway here is that, that what we've done in Bluffton, Georgia, was done by a very average, proud C student from a college <laughs> of agriculture with bank debt, as opposed to a uh, Fulbright scholar with a trust mm-hmm. fund. Right. And what that tells us is it's highly replicatable. What we do here is not highly scalable. We may be as big as we ever need to be. If we are, mm-hmm. that's fine. Mm-hmm. But it's highly replicatable. There could be uh, an economic driver that produces good food like this in every agricultural county in the nation, or two or three mm-hmm. of That would be ideal. And I think that that's where we need to be. I'm, I'm certainly not mm-hmm. sure that's where we're going to be, but it's where we should be. Yes, I am with you on that. I think that is one of the reasons why I, I wanted you to speak here. Um, because I know that the listeners who are listening have a sense of that, like they're on to the scent of that idea. And and the more people who fully understand the depth of what, what you're really doing, the better off the whole country can be. We need to see change, right? Everybody needs to have this, you know, more evolved relationship um, with the land and with animals and community, because now that the unintentional consequence, you know, has shown up. It just shows the virtuous cycle of the whole thing because the byproducts are virtuous. And there's a there's a concept. I've done more um, studies in in uh, Taoism, which kind of advocates that we're all connected with nature, with each other in different ways. And the, that philosophy tells us that if we kind of do the right things, right, we, we act in this way with integrity then the results will also show that integrity. It follows through from, from the core. And in particular with you, the concept of chi, chi is energy, vitality, right? Life force. You have such strong chi with respect to the work that you're doing. And, and one might just say this, the energetic spirit with which you come to the land, with which you care for the animals, with which you, you now embrace your community of employees and the community around you creating this economic vitality, that it's just a ripple effect. And I truly believe, Will, that as this book gets out there too, that that ripple effect will will continue and more people will become of that, become part of that larger network. And, and that chi is just going to nourish more people, basically, just starting with you. And I knew this so long ago about you. So I'm just glad to be talking with you about it. 
Very kind. And, uh, yeah. A little above my pay, little above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know, I talk a little bit about it just to let people understand that there is this connectedness. You just have it intuitively, and there's there's nothing about your wisdom that is C grade in my mind. And I think that's that's important for people to understand. And so one of the things I want to ask you about, if you're willing to share, is how does how does one have like get your child to kind of participate in this? And, you know, because you have Jenny who's working in the business with you, you know, life changes. And I know kids get so into technology and different things. Uh, but it t- to me, it seems like there's such a, you know, compatible uh, operation happening like family wise and and business wise well certainly the 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 greatest blessing for me is two of my three daughters coming back here ah two and of them not, okay great two two i have three daughters the oldest one is not back here she's a school teacher lives about 50 miles from here and is a sweetheart but is not involved with with the mm-hmm. farm uh, two of them are and and their spouses are so uh, I that, that's been great for me for many different reasons. One is I I've been able to watch them develop into business men and business women from kids. Mm. Uh, two is uh, those two couples have three grandbabies that are here on the farm. I get to see every day. They're two, three, and four years old. Wow! And and another great benefit is the fact that. I'm 66 years old, and most uh, independent business people at 66 are looking for an exit strategy. You know, they're, you know, do I sell this business? Do I shut it down? Do I, what do I do with it? Mm-hmm. And I'm spared that because my 30 something year old children are in it. For thirty more years, mm-hmm. so I, you know, the uh, I get to uh, continue helping the plate spin on the stick mm-hmm. as long as I'm physically and mentally able to do so, which is which is great. Yeah. You asked. I think your question was uh, how, how what, what made them come back here, and yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, uh, my daughters were not raised to be cowboys. You know, they, uh, their mother is a school teacher, and, and I was a cowboy. And you know, they went to dancing lessons and singing lessons and ballet lessons and karate lessons and cheerleading lessons. You know, they, they did, you know, pr- pretty much what all their friends were, were doing. They weren't, I was raised working on the farm. And I never ever wanted to do anything but run this farm. You know, when my when I was a kid and my friends wanted to be astronauts or baseball players or I just wanted to run the farm. Nice. Uh, that was not true with my daughters. Uh, we didn't talk about that. But when the time came, they were, two of the three had the passion, and nice. uh, I created a rule that uh, well, I guess my father did actually. My father would not let me come back. To the farm when I graduated from the University of Georgia uh, for a while. Wow. He made me go find a job, which I did. Mm-hmm. And I always worked on the farm, but I had a day job. That was mm-hmm. how I fed my family till I mm-hmm. till I did come back. 
And uh, when my daughters graduated, I insisted they go get a job somewhere. And Jenny went to Atlanta, as a matter of fact. And, uh, okay. and they uh, <clears throat> both ultimately chose to come back here and help run the business. And, and that's what, and, and both of them found uh, spouses, uh, Jenny's wife and Jody's husband, both came from somewhere else and both came from non-farm background. Oh, wow. wow. And uh, they brought both of them here and they're, the all four of them are helping me and, and other non-family members run this farm. This, I should say, this is still a family-owned farm. This is not necessarily a family-run farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, this family is run by uh, us, us with some non-family members. We have uh, it's run by seven directors, two of which are non-family members. Okay. Uh, me, two children, two in-laws, two non-family members. Okay. And those so us seven supervise twenty-six managers, none of whom are family members. Mm-hmm. And then those supervise. 100 and whatever's left, 60 people that are not family. So it's, it's a uh, family-owned, community-run farm is, is kind of what I would say. Yeah, that sounds amazing. What would you say to other cowboys out there who haven't yet made this switch what would you say is the hardest thing that you faced in or or you know the problem that was the hardest to solve when you were making the change? Yeah, I, I get that question a lot, and I, I have an answer that I'm very comfortable with. And uh, so when when a farmer or a person who wants to be a farmer decides to turn the corner to the regenerative humane system, the feeling is that when I learn how to do it out there in the in the pasture and field, uh, you know, I, when I get good at that, I, I'm 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 okay. It'll be fine. And really, that's uh, this is a cautionary tale. That's not enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you farm in a, what I call a proper manner that internalizes those externalized costs. You cannot dump your product into the commodity system. It won't, it won't reward you adequately to, to continue to run your business. You, you're putting value in the product. You can't extract from the commodity market. I see. So you so it's incumbent to be able to, to find that market that will cover those externalized costs. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do that, you've got to be able to process the product. Consumers mm-hmm. don't buy hogs and cows and sheep. They buy beef and pork and lamb. Mm-hmm. And it's the same would be true if it was vegetables. You've got to be able to take the step to, to, to make it monetizable. Mm-hmm. And then there's another step, and that is getting it to those customers. You know, uh, the truth is farmers don't farm where consumers consume Mm-hmm. You know, for the most part, we farm in, in my case, Georgia, Missouri, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, mm-hmm. poor, poor, poor places mm-hmm. economically. The, cons- the consumption 
at least the, the, the lower hanging fruit is in those zip codes with the high disposable income. Mm-hmm. So all those obstacles have to be overcome, and it makes it difficult, and it, mm-hmm. it causes there to be a high attrition rate. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. And that's so, – so having the ability to, to persevere through that difficult transition and to – to really find the right markets becomes the key to to getting that foothold, really, with the products. It's it's, it's a very complex situation, mm. and, and, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not I'm, my effort is not to discourage anyone, mm-hmm. but it is for people to be forewarned that yeah, uh, it's not for the faint at heart, right. And so, so partnering or or being able to distribute through a larger partner that has you know, the distribution centers and the areas of disposable income, that, that has to be part of the strategy, the business strategy for anyone entering that market. And, and you were able to do that. And and we just want to encourage more people to do that, right? Um, to go Absolutely. to get out there and spend their dollars in, in the places and with the, the products that, that really reflect, you know, at the end of the day, I hope the health of the nation um, because the more people who buy it, um, the more support given to the to the whole system. So so that that really is important. It's important for people to hear that, to know to know that their dollars are actually like voting, voting that this is the right way to farm. This is the right way to you know treat animals and take care of the soil. You know, a role model mine is Wendell Berry, and he says something to the effect: "This is not a quote." The consumers vote with their food dollar on how, on how they want the world to be, and that yes. is so true. You know, if 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 consumers find industrial centralized commodity agriculture pleasing, then just keep buying the same products we've been buying for the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. If the those consumers find uh, a business model that is uh, better for the environment. If they find pleasing something that's better for the environment and the animals and the rural economy, they should support that with their dollars because mm-hmm. the you know the, the, the one you feed will win. You know the, yes. the old joke not joke the old fable about the inside you there's uh, two wolves one's good yes. one's bad and they fight and who will win the one you feed. Right. Yes, that that is a good one. I um, I remember making people taste the beef, um, and I would use. I think I was using just like the hamburger meat, the the ground beef, making little meatballs because it was just easy to kind of get the full flavor and the level of uh, you know from chef speak umami and the richness of that sort of natural kind of salt and in, in, in sweetness almost combined within the beef is just exceptional. And w- one thing I remember about grass-fed beef in the beginning was chefs didn't quite know how to fabricate it well enough. And so, you know, I remember some chefs saying, well, I have trouble with managing some of the gristle because these animals are able to roam uh, uh, unlike unlike the sort of large industrial ways of confinement, 
And so they're, they're, the beef is leaner and stronger, right? <laughs> and when you, when you think about food as fuel for the body, wouldn't you want your beef to be leaner and stronger? Because that's the material from which you're building your own muscles. But you do, know, you do need to know how to prepare it, how to cut it. And that's just a little bit of education, and what I would say is, you know, if you're going to buy ground beef for a burger, just you don't even need to think. You just need to buy white oak pastures, <laughs> you yeah. know, just it doesn't take any level of culinary skill to, to figure that one out. That it, The flavor is just, you know, super, like super. So. I appreciate those comments. And when you look at the production system behind it, it's, it's pretty obvious, you know, uh, so the uh, a uh, feedlot animal, a CAFO feedlot animal that's slaughtered will typically weigh 1,400 pounds or so. They'll be about 17 months old. And they'll have three quarters of an inch of back fat or more. Uh, one of our animals when we slaughter will be two years old, not 17 months, two years. Uh-huh. They'll weigh 1,100 pounds, not 1,400 or 11. And they have about a quarter of an inch of back fat. Wow, that's so, remarkable. So it's uh, it's an athlete. And the, you know, our animals are athletes. And if we, uh, on a given day, decided to, 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 to give a pardon to one of our animals and we're not going to slaughter them, we're just going to let them live, they would live to be 20-something years old, which is the wow. normal life expectancy of a cow. That mm-hmm. animal I described with the the... 1,400 pounds, 17 months old, if you pardoned that animal but left him in that feedlot, he, he or she would die very soon because really? that, that animal has all the diseases of mm. sedentary lifestyle and obesity that kill mm. us. Right. So basically, I don't, I don't know why we think that eating a dying animal is necessarily good for us, but yeah. we've been doing it for a long time, and you can make a similar case for poultry and hogs and mm-hmm. other industrially produced animals. Yeah, I, I remember hearing with, with respect to hogs um, a couple of things, things that have bothered me a little, you know, sort of the, the breeding for the longest rib rack, right? And also also creating like a level of fat that, that, you know, fat is flavor on some level, but not really like the way that we prepare foods um, enhances the natural flavor of the, the meat product. And so there seems to be sort of a perversion of using food for health versus, uh, you know, kind of being... in some ways, I guess, maybe um, arbitrary about just wanting more fat and more of something as opposed to sticking with the concept of quality, right? And and that quality is always reflected in the food products that have had the right care and the most natural environment and something that is closest to a natural environment in the process of, of, you know, being raised and and being slaughtered. I I think the slaughterhouse piece too is really important that you have the, the control points to also impact the quality in the processing. I don't think people quite understand 
what that means, knowing that that the food you're buying, you can trace it. The traceability of it is really important in these days in ways that I think the the average consumer, you know, doesn't think about that. I can't trace this all the way back. But when you think about some of the health problems with E. coli and things like that, that have been part of the beef industry and been part of, you know, spinach production even in our country, knowing exactly where your food is coming from gives you a certain level of assurance that you can trust the quality of it and the safety of it. Well, over the last, again, since World War II, 80 years or so, uh, we have made our food production system in in an effort to gain efficiency very linear. Mm. One of the most cyclical systems in the world is the farm ecosystem. Very cyclical, not linear. Mm-hmm. We took reductionist science research and turned that cyclical biome into a very linear food production system, production system like a factory. That's what the term factory farm comes from. Factories are linear. Mm-hmm. And uh, in doing that, we gained incredible efficiencies just Mm -hmm. took incredible cost out of food production. That's why Americans spend so much less than any other country in the production of the food is the efficiency of that linear system. Mm -hmm. Now, until the pandemic, what I don't think we focused on is efficiency and resiliency are almost Mm -hmm. the antithesis of each other. Yes. You want something to be incredibly efficient it probably won't be incredibly resilient. Mm-hmm. You, know, uh, you know, I remember in the Great Recession back in uh, 08, the big companies, they said, big financial companies, they said, are too big to fail. Right. And in fact, I think that our food companies are too big to not fail. Mm-hmm. When you take something and make it just increasingly linear, pushing volume up and up and up and up and up, it's just counterintuitive to think it can't be so far that it loses so much resilience. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so efficient, but at the cost of resilience, that it's going to fail. During the pandemic, I, 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 I remember one morning I was drinking my coffee and putting on my boots and watching CNN, and the screen said that the CEO of Tyson said the the, the, the uh, meat production system is failing in the United States. Mm-hmm. He's right. Yeah. It was. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely failing. It lost its resilience and it was failing. Yeah. And, you know, COVID-21, uh, COVID-19 showed us that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like there'll be a COVID-20. And yeah. if there's not, there'll be hacks. And if there's not, there'll be weather events. And if not, there'll be something we might not have heard of yet. Mm-hmm. And regaining resilience is very important to us. Yes. You know, Will, we hadn't really touched on this in, in some of the questions I um, provided you in advance, but I, I've been serving on a food system resiliency task force in our rural area because there is only one bridge that sort of separates us from, uh, because it's a, a peninsula, from getting certain commodities products here. So when the meat shortage sort of happened, you could see more reliance on 
local farms for meat supply, you could see things kind of shifting back to a more natural order. And what we realized was that, you know, as a community of people, there were 15 organizations and then just a couple of us who were kind of brought in for other reasons to be thinking about food. And we realized that there were just too many chinks in the armor, right? Like the, that we we were too susceptible to breakdown. And, and that if that, you know, Hood Canal Bridge was cut off and we couldn't get supply, that we didn't actually have enough producers to support with any level of ability, like with enough food to feed the people who lived on the peninsula. And yet we have the land to be able to do that. And so we had to start thinking more strategically about how we're going to cultivate that agrarian community and make it more economically viable and feasible to to produce what we would want um, in order to be resilient and, and to also think about food stores and food preservation and all those kinds of things in this area. That came up in the pandemic, and it's a, it's a topic that I don't think we ought to put down now that it's come to light in such a striking way. We, we, are, uh, we have just set up a 501c3 nonprofit called uh, Center for Agricultural Resil- Resilience, CIFAR. Uh-huh. Oh. And uh, uh, we are going to uh, uh, teach on that white oak pasture. We're going to teach resilient food production, which includes all the things we've been talking about. Wonderful. And, uh, we, we set up the nonprofit because some, you know, the, the, the cost is what it is. We, we've calculated it and we think it cost us 400 and something dollars per day to bring a person here, lodge them, feed them, and train them. Mm-hmm. So we are, and so many of the people that we want to train can't afford to yeah. spend $400 a day for mm-hmm. a week or two weeks or a month. So the, the purpose of the nonprofit is to uh, uh, for people who want to support farmers. It's not for white oak pastures. You're, pay, you're actually mm-hmm. paying tuition for right. someone right. to come here and, and right. learn. So I think that's, oh, that's wonderful. a first step. It's not certainly not the only first step. You know, the fact is that and this is this is a, a real shame to me. Uh, people don't know what to do with land anymore, and sadly, mm. the people who own the land don't know what to do with it mm. anymore. Wow. You know, we, uh, uh, I, was, I don't I don't own I don't I don't follow the price of gold because I don't own any gold and mm-hmm. never will own gold. But I was listening to to the news and picked up on the fact that they said that uh, uh, gold was, I think, $2,040 per ounce. And it just struck me because I had just bought a 114-acre farm and paid uh, less than $2,000 an acre for it. Mm. And for me, the concept that an ounce of gold could cost more than an acre of land is incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's just yes. that is just incredible. You know, they're both yeah. non-depreciating assets. Mm-hmm. Gold, admittedly, 
is more portable than right, right. But it's not going to feed you. And it's it's uh, probably a little bit more, uh, probably a little bit more liquid than land. You probably get your money out of it more quickly. But except for except for those two things, there's nothing about owning an ounce of gold that compares to owning an acre of land. So how could it cost more? And the answer is because almost anybody knows what to do with an ounce of gold. I mean, you can put it in the drawer. You can put it in your safety deposit box. You can put a chain on it and wear it around your neck. Mm-hmm. But few people know what to do with an acre of land. Mm-hmm. When I hear that Bill Gates is the largest farmland owner in the country, and pretty damn sure he doesn't know what to do with land. And probably nobody many steps below him in his organization knows what to do with land. Yeah. The federal government owns a tremendous amount of land, and they've demonstrated clearly they don't know what to do with mm-hmm. land. And so much of it's owned by insurance companies and investment funds, and and they don't know what to do with it. And the, the, the sad news is there are a very small number of us, old, mostly old, gray-bearded, not all, but mostly, uh, people that know what to do with land, know how to care for land, you know how to uh, start the cycles of nature and keep them going. So it's uh, that may be the travesty. Well, I hope not. I, I will try to get a link to him, <laughs> to Bill Gates, of our, our podcast, because I think it's important. Um, I've been thinking, you know, with my um, my legal background, how it's important to keep these conversations happening. Um, and I, I think even our laws have to be reexamined uh, to, to align with this different way of valuing the real wealth of land, because right now they they don't right the the kinds of things that get subsidized for farming. So 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 to, to, to that point, I bought a, a a different little farm, smaller farm, a few years ago, and uh, you know, everything I do is with borrowed money because we don't have any money anymore, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so I have to get it appraised so I can borrow the money from the bank, and the bank chooses the appraiser. And in this case, the appraiser they chose was a, a really sharp guy. He was an older appraiser, been doing it for 30 years, and was got a great understanding. Don't only work with farmland, didn't work with residential, industrial. And I, I took him to show him the land, and we had a pretty sort of deep conversation along these lines. And I said, I want to show you something. So we rode to another farm I owned. It's right beside an industrial farm. I said, all right, this land on this side uh, is, is mine. I've owned it for many years. I farmed it with uh, intentional animal impact, and it's 5% organic matter, and it's, it's really productive land. Mm-hmm. This land right here beside it has been industrially farmed. It's a half, it's a, half a percent organic matter. There's a lot of, of uh, pesticide residue in the soil. Uh-huh. It doesn't. Well, the water rushes off because it's it's half mm-hmm. some organic matter. So there's no sponge mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. I said, well, "How would you appraise these two farms?" Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, you know, I'd have to appraise them at the same price." Wow! Wow! Okay. So and, and and he understood and he agreed that 
that's ludicrous. Yeah. But under the uh, customary rules, if that's the right word, of how land is appraised, he would call them the same, of the same yeah. value, which is incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, it it is incredible, and I, you know, I, I do think a lot of it relates to the ignorance with which the laws are made sometimes, and the standards for counting. Because people are uninformed making up the rules. They're, they've never spent the time to intern on the land. Like when I was um, consulting with um, a, a group of uh, people who were making snacks with literally farm produce coming in bulk, doing it by weights. I was I was doing the recipe conversions so that they could just take it straight from what would the what the delivery was and convert it right into a recipe that could go right into a snack and we had to fit everything within the federal codes for nutrition and what it meant was when i was evaluating these these rules you know a, a donut could suffice for the breakfast nutrition of a child and then there were sort sort of weird discrepancies in terms of volume like you could create a legume recipe and you know, because, you know, you're in, well, I knew because I was in culinary training and had nutrition background that the legumes would meet the nutritional requirements, but it couldn't pass the sniff test for the law, whereas the donut could pass the sniff test for the law. And I thought to myself, none of these people who made up these laws ever cooked. They just didn't know and they didn't have any background. And so there, there's a sea change that's necessary to get more information into the minds of the people who are making the laws um, and creating the standards. And, and, and so often, and so often, the people who are making the laws and creating the standards are either paid by lobbyists or sometimes are the lobbyists. Mm, right, that's true. So, so you know, I think that we've uh, really, for sea change, we really got our work cut out for us. And, I, and I'm not sure that I'm not sure that our uh, political system can rise to the occasion. You know, I think yeah. that it's too influenced by big uh, corporate interests that are not the same as certainly my interest. Right, right, and I I agree with you that it it is possible that that the system itself will be the wall that we butt our heads against. But it's still worth the fight because the quality of what you have created is worth it. And the hope, I guess we have to hope, right? We have to hope that more people begin to understand. And I and I do think in some ways, if so many of those laws are made with like people's minds, their, you know, their rational understanding of the efficiencies, it follows a linear format as well. And I think when people begin to listen more with their hearts and just even with their taste buds, right? If they start to listen and feel their way into it, I think we could begin to, to inch our way incrementally in, in the direction that makes sense for the health of um, the planet, really. You know, I have, a some... tremendous, I have a tremendous advantage over you, Rafina. Yeah. Your goal is to save the world. And my goal is to save white oak pastures. 
Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know that I'm going to save the world, but I have to at least put that anchor in the future, you know, and it might be floating in the clouds, mm-hmm. you know, but at the same time, at least the pursuit of talking about it gives me the opportunity to highlight White Oak Pastures and what it's been doing, which to me is a model for how it can be done. And so if people don't know about it, now they can know about it. And if people want to know about it, now they know that they can know that because you have a nonprofit that's coming about. And then if they can't make it to that session, they can read the book that tells the story and they can find their own path and journey to it. And I would, I would invite your listeners to, to, to please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. And my, my daughter has put a tremendous amount of work into telling the story of what we do here for, for people that can't visit us. You know, we, we really urge people to visit us. We, we built cabins for lodging and a restaurant for dining and a store for shopping and an RV park for visitors because the, the greatest nemesis that we have, farmers like us, is greenwashing by these big multinational corporations. That's the biggest nemesis we have. And the only sword and shield we have against them is authenticity and transparency. Mm -hmm. So goal one for us is to convince people, if we can, please come see us. We operate with full Mm -hmm. transparency. We'll show you everything. If If you want to be on the kill floor, you can be on the kill floor in the slaughterhouse. You don't have to scare if you want to. Uh-huh. And, and, and that, that transparency is, is the only way. And, and, and for those that can't come, what you can do is go online, look at our website, and see what we do and believe it because you know you could come if you wanted to. And right. if you choose not to come, it's okay. There's a dozen people somewhere on this farm looking right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where they are because they can go anywhere they want to go. Right. Wow. That's amazing, Will. And I'm going to do a write-up for the podcast, and I'll have links to your website and things like that so that people can find it and and it'll be easy. And, you know, when when I think, I always ask our guests, if we were to reimagine home economics and the curriculum, what kind of learning would you want to give to the young person to begin to understand this way of thinking uh, would you want to give them a recipe with your beef in it or something else? You know, I, I think I think people have just for, uh, forgotten how to cook, and they mm-hmm. have forgotten that you can cook something besides ground beef and a fillet. That's you true. know that. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know the, the the whole nose to tail is so important. Mm-hmm. You know we. Uh, uh, the the idea of uh, slaughtering animals uh, and then what's really marketable is the the fillet and the ground beef is so fly, so flies in in the face of respect of the animal. Yeah. yeah. Now we operate as zero waste here. We sell all the organ meats that are legally nice. marketable. Mm-hmm. We sell all the parts. Mm-hmm. The, the, uh, we, we make leather products out of the hides or mm-hmm. pet chews out of organs like tracheas and penises and esophaguses. 
Wow. Uh, you know, everything is used. Lard, we make room to lard and tallow, which I think are just the, the, the what people should be used for mm. for fats as opposed to vegetable mm. fats. And I, I just I would urge. Uh, I wish that uh, home ec could be more inclusive of uh, the way that, that that probably First Nation people uh, would have uh, treated animals. Right, the respect for the whole of the animal. One of my studies um, that I love is it's called um, Garde Manger. And it's to keep to eat, like, so how to preserve meats and then how to make use of the whole animal in terms of using all of the awful, the organs. And um, the other day I was in the grocery store with my partner and he picked up um, tongue, cow tongue. And I was like, you know, we really should cook cow tongue. We haven't done that. And I have a, a good friend who's from Portugal and it's just a common dish in Portugal, you know, for her wedding part of the whole buffet table that was part of the late night snack after dancing included cow tongue. And it's wonderful, but people don't really, you know, people don't, don't know about it anymore. They've forgotten these things. And these are sort of traditional foods from many different cultures, because I think there was just more respect for the animal originally. And and we've gotten so far away from knowing, knowing things about meat and animals and so I'm I'm happy to hear you say that, and um, maybe I'll I'll look for a recipe for something like that to put in with your podcast. Thank you, Will. I I can't tell you how good it is to see you. How excited I am by everything that you're doing, and how grateful I am once again to remember all the things that you've taught me and continue to teach me. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we we close out our episode? No, just an, I appreciate you having me on today, and it's great to see you again. Great to see you, too. This is episode 13 of Food Love, the space between terroir and the Tao of food. Thank you, Will Harris and White Oak Pastures. Thank you.